0: Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin, also joined by James Fox. Today we are joined as well by Josh Nelson of Sox Machine. You can find him on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. Of course, Josh has been on the White Sox scene for quite a while and does outstanding work over the Sox Machine podcast. I saw you guys put out, Josh, a new sort of podcast, right? It's, It's called Nine Innings. Can you kind of expound upon that for us?
1: Yeah, so with uh, with the situation that we're currently in, right, with coronavirus and everyone being impacted, especially those covering baseball, I decided that in order to keep me sane and try to keep baseball fans entertained, we have created a new game show called Nine Innings in which contestants will try to answer nine questions in a row, ranging from very easy to very difficult, and they'll win prizes along the way. But there is a grand prize, which right now we are awarding a $100 gift card to mobshop.com if someone can answer all nine questions correctly. Unfortunately, our very first contestant on our first show got the first question wrong, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so we were off to a little bit of a rough start. The farthest anyone has gotten so far is answering five questions correctly, uh, but yeah, until. Until baseball comes back to the fold, uh, when our lives go back to normal, I should say, Uh, then we'll go back into our daily routines as far as covering the the White Sox and what's happening in the major leagues. But right now, to keep me sane and hopefully everybody else entertained, yes, we do have a new show. We have a new game show called Nine Innings.
0: Yeah, Josh, I wanted to mention that because I feel like we have a pretty good contestant with us and James, right? James,
2: would you be willing to jump on? Oh, sure. I don't have anything else to do, so why not?
0: (laughs) Yeah, because we're we're in this situation, and we're in the same boat, Josh. You know, we want to be able to provide content, and that's kind of our goal. What our goal has been lately is trying to, you know, get people like you, knowledgeable White Sox fans, on our podcast to not only entertain, but to inform and to keep things as light as possible during these trying times. And on this episode today, I wanted to touch base with you on a lot of different White Sox Conversation. We'll talk about the draft a little bit later on. But also, you know, when we have these personalities on our podcast and, and, you know, credible bloggers on our podcast, we like to explore their opinions on minor league consumption and how it's been impacted across the White Sox rebuild. In the past, like even before I seriously dedicated myself to future Sox, I, I kind of let the minor leagues go on the wayside. I couldn't help yeah. it. There's just so many names so many leagues, teams, it's hard to follow, but of course when the White Sox commit to these young players, it's so much fun. It's great now that ultimately that we will see these players come to fruition at the big league level. That's something that I cannot wait for and it's making this quarantine period even harder to get through knowing what's awaiting on the other side. But first Josh, I'd like to kick things off with you regarding some of the news that we heard this well today and as well as last week. Chris Sale, Noah Syndergaard, two prime pitching names in Major League Baseball will be undergoing Tommy John surgery. And I'd love to get your opinion on just those two first, but as well, how it relates to the White Sox, because some guys in the Sox system, like Jimmy Lambert, Dane Dunning, suffered major surgeries as well. They're not playing. And even Carlos Rodon falls into this category. Does, do you think this off period, sort of helps the White Sox in a way, in some twisted way, that, you know, hey, they might benefit from this period without
1: playing baseball so these guys can get back in time. You know, that's a good question. And I think, I would like to say yeah, because the White Sox had some nagging injuries through spring training. It was clear that Edwin Encarnacion was not 100% when he was swinging the bat down in Arizona. He just did not look good. And Yasmani Grandal had the whole calf strain And he was overcoming that. And Lucas Gilito had a slow start to spring training. But I don't think anyone was doubting that he would be ready to start opening day if we had opening day on March 26th, uh, that he would be ready to go. Um, But now you have this really weird period where everyone shut down. I I mean, I guess they're playing in the backyard and they're throwing to their wives or girlfriends uh, and and they're trying to do the best, the best they can to stay in shape. But this is almost worse than in the offseason. I mean, in a regular off season, these guys don't stop working. They, they They find their personal coaches. They have their gyms. They have their personal trainers that they work out with to get themselves prepared for spring training. It's something that even stuck with me during the first spring training broadcast with Steve Stone when he made the comment that These guys don't prepare like we used to back in the day. Back in the day, spring training was the time to get in shape. These guys are in shape already, and they're just trying to fine-tune and be able to hit the ground running on opening day. Now the world has stopped, and all of these players in Major League Baseball can't do what they were normally doing. So we're going to have to have a second spring training, And it'll be interesting to see on how that ramp up period went because you had a ramp up, Mike, and now you have a cool down and now you're going to ramp up again. And there's a lot of sports physicians and doctors who say that's the trouble area is when you shut down and you try to ramp up again, do some players ramp up too much and get themselves hurt? So that's why I have to say I don't know if this benefits the White Sox. I don't know if this benefits anyone in Major League Baseball. But I will say that if they don't start again until June, you may get an opportunity where Carlos Rodon would be available if healthy. And then that gives you some more starting pitching depth. Uh, and That may cause a little bit more headaches as far as configuring your rosters. Um, but I, the answer is I don't know, Mike. And I don't think anybody else knows in Major League Baseball right now On who receives the biggest benefit? I know Jim Bowden tried to answer that question today in the Athletic, and he had the White Sox at his top five. Um, But with the way the White Sox are today, with Noah Syndergaard and Chris Sale deciding to uh, get their Tommy John surgeries, because this could be just a a complete lost season for them anyways. If they are, you know, if they are seriously hurt, and they are, they must be seriously hurt to get the surgery. Um, But if everyone's viewing this as a lost season, or even a half season. I don't know who gets the biggest benefit.
2: Yeah. And I saw that Jim or Jim Bowden article today. He put the white Sox at number five and didn't even mention Carlos Rodon in the article. So I don't, you know, Right. know it was all would,
1: about the youngsters,
2: right? Yeah. That would be like one of the reasons would be like, you get Rodon right away. You could, you know, whatever, bring up Dane Dunning and throw him in the bullpen, even though that seems a little bit crazy. But so, you know, who does benefit though? I, I, I take it back the Yankees, because you may get James Paxton ready to
1: go and the Astros because the Astros were going to lose Justin Verlander for the first two months of the season and now they won't if the season picks up again in June. So yeah. I take that back. I'm wrong. There are two teams that clearly benefit and that's the Yankees and the Astros right now. But for the everybody else in Major League Baseball, I don't know and I don't know how quickly all the teams are going to be able to be get themselves prepared in a two-week mini spring training to get ready to play 81 or hundred games in 2020
2: twenty, we're, we're in uncharted territory for everyone in major league baseball. Yeah, I would, I would kill for 100 at this point. So um, one of the, one of the things that we've been asking all of our guests and you're going to be a little bit different here, I think, but is just with a, you know, a white Sox team that we have a feeling was going to be pretty decent, you know, and competing, how would that have affected your consumption of my, the minor league product this year? That's a good question. I would have only paid attention from Winston-Salem
1: to Charlotte. Not saying that Kannapolis doesn't matter. It'd be nice to watch some games of Kannapolis and see the stadium. And with Andrew Dahlquist and Matthew Thompson, more than likely pitching there at some point, it'd be worthwhile to tune in to see on how they're progressing. But in my mind, James, I mean, they're 18, 19 years old. It's still a very long road for them and i think nobody should freak out if they struggle at cannapolis right this is their first full professional season uh as baseball players it's going to be a long journey for them uh, but especially in Birmingham, my focus would have been on Andrew Vaughn because he's worth the price of a mission for the stream and see how he's adapting to pitching as far as in Birmingham. We all know that is a very difficult test for White Sox position players. And then, of course, with Charlotte, my assumption was that Michael Kopech was going to start there. The way that Nick Magical was playing during spring training, he was probably going to be with Charlotte as well. Uh, and, of course, the White Sox made it known last week that they had plans of sending Zach Collins and Nierma Mercedes down to Charlotte. So the Charlotte Knights would have been a lot of fun to watch because you have, you clear, in my opinion, you clearly have Major League talent ready down in Charlotte. So it would be worthwhile to watch the Charlotte Knights, and it would be worthwhile to watch the Birmingham Barons because of Andrew Vaughn. But a, co- a few years ago, a lot of my attention was on Kannapolis and Winston-Salem. Because that's where the bulk of the White Sox prospects were. But in in where we are right now with the roster construction for the White Sox and them exiting the rebuild, my focus would have been primarily on Birmingham and Charlotte. Yeah, you
0: mentioned I wanted to stick on Kannapolis and Winston-Salem if I could. Um, and, and you mentioned Andrew Dahlquist, Matthew Thompson. We expect him to be in full season canny uh, in their first full professional season, a couple of second and third round picks. That's exciting out of high school. But, you know, there's guys like Bryce Bush, uh, Luis Mieses that we've heard good things from, from guys like Ben Badler, uh, and and in Winston-Salem, Connor Pilkington, you know, Taylor Varnell. Like, there are these players that maybe on the lower end of the prospect list within the White Sox system, but still enough to keep an eye on. So I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. But somebody that I'd like to ask you about related to the Kannapolis, now Cannonballers, is Bryce Bush. And... James wrote a piece mm-hmm. way back when for future socks about Bryce Bush being a, a super late round in the thirties, right? Right. James was a 38th round pick 33rd, I believe. 33rd. Yeah. So now Bryce Bush, he struggled last year, but we all see the potential in this type of player. Josh, I'd love your opinion on Bush.
1: Yeah. With Bryce Bush. I mean, it's a lot of raw talent, right? And I think Bryce Bush is a great experiment for the white Sox development system. They have a lot of experience now with the ACE program for the White Sox. Everybody views ACE as this, oh, this is this nice charitable thing that the Chicago White Sox do for inner city kids to play baseball. No. You talk to any scout and any prospect rider, and they will straight up tell you ACE is a baseball factory. I mean, Ed Howard is a bona fide first-round pick, and that's another first-round pick that – Amateur city elite is going to develop in the last five years. I don't think he's going to get as drafted as a Ray. What's his first name Uh, for the Milwaukee Brewers? Last name is Ray.
2: Oh yeah. From yeah. From the Corey Ray. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, He won't get drafted fifth overall like Corey Ray, Um, but he's going to be the highest prep player that they were ever going to have drafted come out of ace. Uh, They still have the major league baseball draft. I'm sure we'll talk about that later in the show. Um, But, you know, with Bryce Bush, the reason why he's a great experiment is that all these raw talents that they get into ace, they've been tracking these players since they were 12 years old. Like Ed Howard, the White Sox have data of Ed Howard from 12 to 18 years old. They didn't have that with Bryce Bush. And now they're trying to take this raw talent and put it in their development system and see if they can unlock it. Because if they can, and there's parts of Bryce Bush's game, and learning from the lessons of Mike Adolfo, okay, Mike Adolfo was a prized international signing. And let's face it, because of injuries, it hasn't been a very smooth ride for the White Sox in getting Mike Adolfo to the major leagues, but with what they know from ACE and the knowledge that they've gained from that program and the cross checkers who help run that program, teach the scouts and the scouts then with the on-field coordinators and coaches, if, if the whole organization can work together and untap some of that potential with Bryce Bush and help translate it to results on the field. This is one of those long term efforts that's really going to dramatically change on how the White Sox build their future farm systems where they may be more confident drafting more prep players and spending more money on the international front. And I think the reason why the White Sox have been so heavy on the college players in recent years is that. That's what they were comfortable developing. That most of these players are the, the heavy lifting of development has already taken place, and the colleges have done that for them. But as the White Sox are adding new staff and getting new people into the think tank, uh, I think, you know, Bryce Bush is a great case study to see and how he develops in 2020. And if he can make the transition to becoming a very good baseball player and a legitimate prospect for the White Sox that grabs attention throughout Major League Baseball, then I hope that this gives the White Sox more confidence to be riskier in selecting prep players earlier in the draft and being more aggressive on the international front rather than trading international budgets away so they don't have to pay off uh, contracts like Nate Jones and Wellington Castillo in the future.
2: Josh, you're going to trigger me. Like, uh, this, <laughs> like, those trades were were horrendous. Um, so one, <laughs> Sorry, James. We, yeah, geez. So one <laughs> of, I was going to ask you, though, about that development model. So obviously everybody talks about, you know, how the White Sox organization is the same as it's always been with Ken Williams and Rick Hahn running the show. And while that is true, you know, the organization is quite a bit different. So I guess give me your thoughts on what they did this offseason, because this offseason under Chris Getz was some of, uh, you know, the biggest change that this organization has seen, like probably in my lifetime. And while you could yeah. probably argue they might still be behind some of the industry, like at least it's finally like looks like a normal you know, development model that's like top down with, you know, all the hitting coaches at each level and they got a biomechanic or a biomechanist. So what are your thoughts on what they did this off season? And it just being like a welcome change finally that we've been waiting for.
1: So reading the MVP machine, there's a great chapter about the Houston Astros called We Are Astronauts. And now looking back at that book and seeing that the Houston Astros cheated in 2017, it kind of leaves a sour taste in one's mouth. But the reason why the Houston Astros have been successful and especially with the players they have now, and there's a lot of homegrown talent, the Houston Astros have is that the message was the same across all the levels. And, it didn't matter what level that they were. The message was the same and all the data and all the coaching tips went into this central source so that when the player progressed through the system, they were continuing to get the same coaching and they were continuing to get the same messaging. And I think that was the one thing that I saw from Chris gets with all the coaching changes that he's trying to get things more aligned. And I know there's a lot of white Sox fans, James that were thinking Omar Vizquel is going to replace Rick Renteria. Well, now Omar Vizquel is managing a Mexican league baseball team. Why? Because Omar Vizquel was coaching the Birmingham Barons to improve his resume, not fall in line with what the White Sox were trying to do from a development front. And a big area is just running whenever. And having guys try to steal bases that are clearly not base stealers and getting them into bad habits platooning prospects and not having them see more left-handed pitching, especially like Zach Collins, like Zach Collins in Birmingham needs to get all the reps that he can have to develop better as a left-handed hitter. And I think having a coaching alignment and bringing in new people, like the biomechanics that you mentioned. I laugh because I never they figured the White Sox would ever do that, but they've embraced it and they have embraced the technology and they are trying to embrace data. And they're now sharing that data across all the levels. So these guys are not only learning good habits and understanding what this data means and how this data helps them, but they are now preparing even down to Canapolis on what it's like to prepare when you make into the major leagues. And I think when you have that mindset, James, all the way down to a ball and you carry that with you every single level, I believe, I firmly believe that will help ease the transition from the minors to the major leagues. That if you already know how to prep in the minor leagues, like you're going to be playing in Chicago, it'll make that transition easier for you when you eventually get to Chicago that you already have those good habits being prepared for games. And I'm, And this is just a bummer missing at least half the season for the minor leagues this year. I was really eager to see on how the first half would have gone for the White Sox minor leagues and see which prospects have been embracing those new habits and who would have had really fast starts and which prospects would have had that learning curve and maybe slow, have a slow start out of the gate, but pick up as the season went along as they start learning these new facets of being prepared for games.
0: Josh, that was a lot of really good stuff, and I think you hit on so many important notes. And one that I'd like to focus on is the fact that you mentioned that from top to bottom, the philosophy is the same. And to me, like running a major league organization for one club to not have that philosophy across their minor league system bounds me. So or confounds me, I should say. So what I'm what I want to focus on here is really give credit to the White Sox develop, developmental staff. And looking at one in particular in Matt Zaleski, and we talked yeah. to a couple of players who he helped in a lot of big, in, in a lot of ways, but them specifically in Matt Foster and Tyler Johnson. Now they spent a lot of time with Zaleski across their time in the system, but it, it sticks in my head how much they credited Zaleski in, hey, he saw what we did individually and worked to help fix that. Now you can even go back to Chris Sale. The, the slight tweaks that helped Chris Sale stay in a White Sox uniform healthy and not only stay healthy, but succeed to the to the level that he did in a Sox uniform. So I'd love your opinion on where the Sox are in, in their developmental prospect, or system related to these prospects, specifically headed by Matt Zaleski related to the pitching staff.
1: Well, I, I do want to touch on Chris Sale. Chris Sale spent very little time in the minor leagues And then boom he was in chicago and he was under the care of don cooper Uh, so i i don't think even the white Sox trusted themselves with an uber talent like chris sale when they drafted him earlier last decade uh to spend a year in the minor leagues and fully know if he's a starting pitcher or not uh they wasted no time having him in the bullpen and just learning how to pitch in the major leagues under Don Cooper. That that's kind of a unique situation. Same thing with Carlos Rodon. Carlos Rodon barely spent any time in the minor leagues, but I'm glad you mentioned Matt Zaleski. And for anyone that listens to the Sox machine podcast, or you guys follow me on Twitter. You know that I'm a big fan of bold predictions. So James, I'm going to throw this across your way and you let me know if I'm out of my mind in two years, I think Matt Zaleski is going to be working in the White Sox front office, and he is going to be the director of pitching.
2: Yeah, I don't think that's crazy. I thought he was going to get the job this year when they gave it to Everett Teeford. Yeah, I mean, Teeford is
1: is a great hire as well. I mean, Teeford is more of as far as the analytics, right? Now yeah, I'm so, thinking but, about
2: so, it. When I, so, you know, we had heard that Danny Farquhar was going to Winston-Salem. Right. And I did, and I knew Zaleski wasn't going to Birmingham from a contact. So I was like, okay, Zaleski's going somewhere. Steve McCaddy was, you know, seemed fine. So I'm like, oh, they're gonna make Zaleski the, you know, the head of pitching. And then that's not what they ultimately did. But you know, so I mean, he was obviously on the move. Um, I I agree with you, but I also, you know, I think Danny Farquhar is like gonna move in some capacity here pretty quick too. So oh, I, th- I think Danny Farquhar might be the bullpen
1: coach for the White Sox in a couple of years. He, he may be one of those guys at the White Sox groom to possibly take over for Don Cooper. I mean, the White Sox really love Danny Farquhar as far as his personality and his work ethic. And I think it's great that they brought him into the organization and that he, after that scary, scary aneurysm, uh, that he's perfectly fine and, you know, he's found his new path to still stay in baseball. But, you know, getting a chance to talk to Zaleski last year when I was in Winston-Salem, ask him some questions about Alec Hansen at the time and what his thoughts were, He's he's a bright guy, and not only does he understand as far as the data and be able to teach the data and as far as teach the data so the pitchers have a good grasp and understanding of what it all means and how focusing on things like spin rate can help them sharpen their pitches and help with their arsenal. That he's been there as well. He's been on that mound. And you know, as far as pitching coaches go that it's also like part coach, part therapist. Like You have to make sure that, because it's such a stressful occupation, pitching, right? It feels like you're on an island for anyone that's, even if you pitched in the little leagues, you probably understand that feeling that if you recall your days on the mound, it just feels like you're on an island, and you just have to learn how to zone everything out and be able to hyper-focus on your target and being able to execute it's one thing to look at the data and look at baseball savant. I, I can look at baseball savant and I can pull out all this data and I can sit down with Lucas Gilito and tell Lucas, hey, you know, you really need to work on your spin rate on your slider because it's you can get more bite out of that pitch and you can tunnel it better than your fastball. But I've never done that in my lifetime. When you have someone like Matt Zaleski who not only understands that data, but he's been on that mound and he's gone through what the pitches have gone pitchers have gone through. I think that's why he's just one of those guys that you need to keep an eye on because I think he's going to rise quickly through the White Sox coaching ranks. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's part of the White Sox front office helping out the entire organization. And something to go back to what Mike mentioned, the top-to-bottom approach. that That's where the White Sox really need to focus on. And he's someone that could help execute that game plan to make sure that everyone from Charlotte, all the way down to Arizona for that rookie league, that everyone is preparing the same way. And they're they're executing what the White Sox envisioned them to do as far as their game plans. Because if they learn those good habits, every level that they move up, they're just going to be able to refine their skills and be more major league ready than the past White Sox prospect development efforts. I would say as soon as five years ago, the White Sox really didn't have this type of game plan.
0: So there's a name that kind of jumped in my head when you mentioned spin rate and all of the analytics incorporated to the value of understanding spin rate and and how to incorporate that into your game. Cade McClure is a guy who's 6'7", and he's somebody who's not going to overpower you with his fastball. However, he's got a ton of RPMs on his fastball. Uh And when he talked to us a couple years ago, actually, I think it was in 2018, he sat down with Clinton Cole, he mentioned that it opened his eyes in terms of how he approaches attacking opposing hitters. Now, when you're thinking of a guy who's sitting 91, 93, tops out 95, 96, you want to dot the corners, stay low in the zone. But with higher RPMs, you want that ball to continue to rise, so you attack up in the zone. And I feel like that philosophy adapted by McClure helped him get to where he is today in his development. Now he's 24 years old. Pitched in Kannapolis last year. He's got a career ERA of 305. That's very encouraging, but I think that also kind of relates to Dylan Cease in in a certain way. Now, it's sort of a different conversation, but I'd love to shift the conversation to Dylan Cease specifically because of what we learned about how he's trying to fix his fastball. You know, we knew across his time in the Cubs system and briefly throughout the time in the White Sox uniform, he had issues locating with his fastball. And we learned that his fastball naturally cuts. The White Sox are trying to fix that by fixing the four seam fastball to go straight and rise. How do you feel about Dylan Cease now with all
1: of the information and considering, you know, what I just laid out to you. So having spoken to Dylan Cease at two different endpoints, So last April, I spoke with him in Charlotte when he was just getting his first couple of AAA starts And I asked him about, like, what are you focusing on? What are you trying to improve upon in AAA before you reach the major leagues? And he mentioned as far as keeping his front shoulder in, not flying out so much, because, yes, his fastball naturally cuts, but when his front shoulder flies open, it just sails away from the target that he's aiming for. Uh, And when he was in Charlotte, his goal was, I want to throw my breaking stuff harder And that he wanted to get more RPMs. And he wanted to throw his curveball faster. Because he felt that if he did that, he would get more break. And it would tunnel better with his fastball. So Dylan Cease is someone that totally understands this concept. And what he just needs to do is, because I think he's very cerebral. And James, I know you got a chance to talk to him as well. Uh, The guy just understands the art of pitching. Uh, It's just the execution part. Being able to execute it when you're on the mound and, you know, you're throwing 97, 98. When you throw that type of velocity, uh, you, you have, uh, you don't have to live in the zone. You'll get guys to chase plenty. You don't have, you know, it, you know, with the guys that are 91, 92, they got to hit dot the corners. Yeah. But when you're throwing 97, 98, if you're somewhere around the zone, you'll get guys to chase. So I always think that Dylan Cease will get more strikeouts. But talking to him at SoxFest, he believed that he fixed the issue during the offseason, that he was confident that he fixed it. And again, he mentioned the front shoulder. Speaking with Yasmani Grandal, Grandal mentioned watching film and speaking with Cease. He thinks it's game calling. That was a problem that... There's a pitch mix in Grandal's mind that he believes will make Dylan Cease better as far as with control. We didn't get a chance to see that during spring training because Grandall was hurt and we would have had to wait until the regular season uh, to see what kind of pitch mix Grandal had waiting for Dylan Cease to see if it would help his control. We're going to have to wait. But when it comes to RPM's they're already thinking about it. the The elite guys are, and I'm glad you mentioned Cade McClure. Cade McClure went to Louisville, and you know I've spoken to Coach Dan McDonald, one of the elite college coaches in all of baseball. He's coached Team USA as far as in the collegiate level, and this is something that Louisville has embraced, and they are training their pitchers to do. Uh, they he had one of the best starting pitchers in all of college, and Reed Detmers, and Reed Detmers is definitely a top 10 pick in my book. Uh, and one of the things that you people talk about with Reed Detmers is, is that that fastball is average. It's a 92-mile-per-hour fastball. But my Lord, that curveball, man. With the RPMs that Detmers is able to get and that spin rate and how batters just give up, it's something that Louisville has embraced in the college level. And that's something that Cade McClure could take with them. And as we continue as far as this theme with the White Sox embracing that, I think it would give someone like Cade McClure an opportunity to surprise some folks and find his way into the major leagues when a lot of people thought that he would never reach the major leagues. As long as he can stay healthy, I mean, that's the always big if. And we talked about, you know, Noah Sindergaard and Chris Sale, even the guys that are elite and have tremendous success. You do not know when your arm will give out and knock on wood. Kay McClure can stay healthy because he's one of the guys that I'm high on just because he's had that experience at Louisville. And a lot of the things that you guys touched on with the, as far as the advanced metrics on his pitch, the quality of his pitches, that this is someone that could surprise and rise up the levels because this stuff is better than what people think it is.
0: I, love, I love, McClure is just physical profile and his pitch mix, and I, you know, there there are limitations to his game, but now with these advanced metrics, you could capitalize on those limitations and then kind of get him to an equal plane. So I, I I love the info that you just provided there, on McClure. I'm excited about him. You mentioned Yasmani Grandal, and now anytime we talk Yasmani Grandal, I continue to get more and more encouraged about having him on the White Sox in this organization. Absolutely. Just, just knowing that he's working with, you know, these pitchers, not only that in, in in terms of getting them to that elite point, but also helping guys like Zach Collins or any other catcher in the organization and getting them to that next step. So you know, with that being said, I'd like to shift focus to the spring training side before it all got shut down. I saw yes, money Grandal take a few plate appearances and he looked unbelievable. At the plate, just locked in like he didn't miss any time at all. So I was actually there while spring training got canned, saw the last three days of White Sox spring training and was kind of put off on a couple of things. Like I didn't like what I saw from Mick or Adolfo. Um, There are a few guys, but there's a lot of optimism. Right. Uh And we saw a lot for the first time, too. I I don't know. I don't want to say the first time, Josh, but in a long time, I I should say as a Sox fan, I recognized almost everybody on the spring training roster. And they had like over 60 guys on that on that active spring training roster. So for you, who was it that really, I guess, not surprised you, but what you saw in spring training that encouraged you specifically from some guys? I mean,
1: Luis Robert was hitting the ground running. I mean, Just the way that Robert was performing in spring training, I was so excited for March 26th because I don't think people really understand. Like, there's people that, you know, rely on future socks, right? Tell me who is good and tell me how good someone is. And I don't know about you, James. I have had a very difficult time trying to convey how good Luis Robert is going to be when he finally arrives in Chicago and plays in the major leagues. Like I keep coming back to this comp and this is something that you guys had Kylie McDaniel on your guys show not that long ago. And this is a comp that Kylie has uh, as a ceiling for Luis Robert. He also says that the floor could be Luis Brenson, And I know that makes some white Sox fans angry, but I mean, it, Luis Robert could, if things don't click for him, But if things click for him, this could be Ronald Acuna Jr. for the White Sox. Now, think about that. Ronald Acuna Jr. is awesome. He is awesome. He is going to be a perennial National League MVP candidate. And if Luis Robert could be just as good as Ronald Acuna Jr., and you got Yohan Mikado, and you got Eloy Jimenez, and you got Tim Anderson, and you have the veterans like Abreu, Grandal, and Encarnacion, that's what gets you excited for the White Sox in these upcoming years, especially this upcoming three years, and why this sucks right now. (laughs) But we're not going to be talking about opening day in a couple of days because this was going to be by far and away the best and most talented White Sox team we've seen, gosh, definitely since 2012. I mean, I think there's more talent than the 2012 team. Maybe the most talented team the White Sox have had 2008, uh, last time they went to the postseason. So that's uh, Luis Robert definitely was someone that stuck out to me uh, and everyone else was performing well. The, I did have a concern and that the concern was the battle for second base. I was hoping that Nick magical would take that opportunity and run away with it and, and blow Danny Mendick out of the water. That did not happen. Danny Mendick wasn't playing all that great. And it just seemed pretty clear that Louis Garcia should be the starting second baseman at opening day. Um, Because Danny Mendek and Nick Magical just didn't seem like they were ready to go for the regular season. Uh, Obviously, spring training stats really don't matter. But those are the two things that stuck out to me. Luis Robert was awesome and looked like he was ready to go for opening day. But second base was still going to be a question mark for the White Sox. And it would have been interesting to see on how Rick Renteria and Rick Hahn would have handled that situation. My guess would have been they would have gone the veteran route and they would have ended up with Louie Garcia to start at second base. And that unfortunately would have sent Nick Magical down to Charlotte. I still don't think that would have been the right way to go, that I think the White Sox should just move ahead and have Nick Magical be their starting second baseman and kind of learn on the fly and bat ninth because I think he's got a load of talent and he's got a high floor. And I think he's one of those players that could be quick to adapt to Major League pitching. But yeah, I mean... For spring training one, it was Luis Robert in the battle of second base. We'll see what spring training two brings us. Right. <laughs> uh, hopefully in a in a month or two.
2: Yeah, I mean, hopefully during spring training two, Luis Robert stops sliding in head first during spring training games. That w- that was my only. That's his game, James. Th- yeah, that's what no, he's going to do. I I know. So, and that's one of the things too. Like we've obviously talked about Luis Robert a ton. Even when he came over from Cuba, you know, we covered the signing. But one of the things that I took for granted was the defense. Like, I think it was just kind of like, you know, and you had scouting directors say like, oh, this is the best guy like on the planet. That's not in the majors or whatever. But, you know, there were still some that kind of thought that he was just going to get big and play right field. And he's he's not he's awesome in center. And it's one of the things Uh that we've talked about, even with these evaluators that have come on. I mean, we had Keith Law on. I mean, Keith Law's, you know, trials and tribulations trying to see him play he's like never seen him get a hit and he still has him like ranked yeah. sixth in baseball you know just because that's the kind of prospect this is i mean even when he struggled initially and battled injuries with the white Sox, we would talk to players that were like you know this is like this guy doesn't belong down here on the same field as us you know like it right it was ridiculous so yeah i would agree with you there like Luis robert was definitely um the talk of spring training one thing that i want to ask you more specifically about is nick madrigal just with you know, like, obviously, Keith Law, you know, is probably the low man in the industry. Everybody uh-huh. else, I think some guys have backed off a little bit on Nick Madrigal. Um, but what do, you, what do you think about him and, like, just that profile in general and, and the concerns that some people have about that profile?
1: Okay. I think with Nick Madrigal, for 2020, he was going to be Yomer Sanchez, but for $580,000 instead of $6.5 And Yomer Sanchez is a two war player. Why? Because he's awesome on defense. He can't hit for a lick, but he's a really good defender. I know Nick magical is an excellent defender at second base. I have been watching him through Oregon state. I know you have as well, James, and he didn't play shortstop at Oregon state. Why? Because Caden Grenier was playing at shortstop and Grenier could stick at shortstop. He's a great defender, as well. And, and magical has got soft hands. He's got great range. He's got a range of a shortstop, even though he's a little bit on the smaller size, as far as height. Uh, and he's got a strong enough arm to make the throws behind second base. And he's, He's got great quick transition at second as well on double plays. We know how key that is. Yomer Sanchez was one of the better second basemen in all of Major League Baseball and turning double plays as far as that quick transition. Nick Magical has it as well, and he's still able to make accurate throws even though guys are bearing down on him sliding into second base. Uh, he can still stay in there and get the throw off and make it. So defensively, I was very confident that, that Nick Magical could replace what Yomer Sanchez left for the White Sox. And the, and the glove itself would, would have been worth one and a half to two war. Offensively, I think pitchers are going to test him with velocity. Like, especially when they're facing a number one, number two in the starting staff. And these guys are throwing 95 to 97 and they're throwing up in the zone. Nick Magical is going to struggle. Because when he makes contact, it's just going to be shallow fly balls and they're going to get caught in the major league level. While a lot of these are finding some grass in Winston-Salem and Birmingham and Charlotte, they're not going to find grass in the major leagues. Well, I take that back. Unless they're playing like the Royals, Tigers, and the Orioles, and the terrible teams, yeah, they'll find the ground. Um, but against the best teams of baseball, like the Minnesota Twins, it's not going to find the grass. Uh, he, he would struggle with velocity up in the zone. But facing the back half of starting rotations, I think that's kind of where the stuff is not as good. And those starting pitchers have to live low in the zone because they don't have the velocity to live up in the zone. They would get killed. If pitchers have to come lower in the zone, I think that's where Nick Magic would find some success. And I think that would be typical for any rookie. They'll struggle against the aces because they're learning, but they'll take advantage of the guys who are, Four or five starters in the major leagues, maybe barely better than quadruple A starting pitching, and they would find success there. So, Nick Madrigal, in my mind, he could have hit like 280 with a 330 on base percentage and slug like 370. So, he would have had a 700 OPS. But because of his glove, he still would have had a very solid rookie campaign where he was a two war second baseman, replacing the production that Yomer Sanchez had at a fraction of the cost that the White Sox could take that money. And as we saw this off season, they did spend it elsewhere on players like Yasmani Grandal and Dallas Keiko and Edwin Encarnacion to help make up offensively the lack of production. They would get second base by greatly enhancing other positions on the field.
2: Yeah. Good stuff there, Josh. So one of, you know, we finally like reached the portion of this conversation I think where I want to talk to you about a passion that we both share, which is the Major League Baseball draft. Um, there's obviously a lot of info out there right now, just to, you know, about them possibly canceling the draft to save owners money, or to you know make the draft yeah. only 20 rounds, or to push it to July or whatever. So I guess my first question for you: What do you think they should do? Like, do you think they should just, like, keep it where it is regardless of when the actual Major League season starts? Um, And then, yeah, I guess just that. And then, I guess, predict, like, what you think they might do.
1: Okay, so what I think they should do, and let's have a conversation about this because my my thoughts are not firm, James. And yeah. for those that are listening, James and I, we've hosted the, the draft show, streaming it live, bringing in the, you know, the best minds about this stuff to talk about the white Sox draft picks, especially during the rebuild, because it's important. They were drafting really high and the white Sox are going to select 11th. When they do have this upcoming draft, I do think they're going to have the draft. I think there are too many teams that are, that are prepared. They're going to overrule the teams that are not prepared. And I think major league baseball is asking the players association, how they feel about it to go back to the teams that are not as prepared to tell them that the players association is not going to accept not having the draft. We're going to have to have the draft. Good luck. Now, Ala Vila, speaking with Keith law on the athletic a couple of weeks ago in law's piece that he was reporting. Seems like the tigers are ready to go. If you have the draft tomorrow, the Detroit tigers would know who they're selecting number one overall. And I think that's important. Because when the team that drafts number one is ready to go, then everyone else can fall in line. The one adjustment that I would make, so I'd keep the draft in June. I wouldn't have it in Omaha. I would have it in New York and just focus on the telecast so I could uh, – never mind. Jim Callis is very good at his job. <laughs> he and Jonathan Mayer are are terrific, but the other MLB guys like Harold Reynolds, like – Trying to find cops. Well, I think he's this guy. Oh, shut up, Harold. You've never seen this guy play. Like, stop comparing them to major leaguers. Yeah, um, I remember
2: when when Keon Barnum was the next Ryan Howard, I was like, yes!
1: Right, yes. Right. He was the American like, Association yeah. MVP. Just saying. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. no, you know. Yeah. So I think they're going to keep the draft in June. One, I, I think they should reduce it as far as the rounds from 40 to 25. Because the problem that I see is that. Even the teams that say that they are are prepared, I think they are prepared for the first five rounds. But after the fifth round, what are you going to do? And with Major League Baseball now granting an extra year of eligibility to college seniors for missing this spring year, they now suddenly have leverage where the White Sox last year used a draft strategy of upfronting their bonuses in the first 10 rounds to the first three round picks. Um, and then draft college seniors from the fifth round to the 10th round and give them $10,000. I don't think that's going to fly. I think college seniors will say, listen, if you're not going to give me $50,000, I'm just going to go back to college and just play an extra season and finish out my college career because I, I think I lost that opportunity uh, to fi- to finish how I wanted to finish my college career. And, and I think that's going to be troublesome for some teams. So I think the draft strategy the White Sox used last year, I don't think they'd be able to be as successful in pulling off that type of same draft strategy in 2020 with what has happened with the college season. And you'd just be throwing darts at a dartboard at guys' names. Because typically after the fifth round, you, you really need a gameplay in April and May with the cross checkers and the area scouts being like, hey, I saw this guy a couple times while scouting somebody else. I think there's a skill set there that we could take advantage of. And, and looking at the track man data, you know, some of the metrics look good. Uh, we should take a chance on them. You just won't have that type of data to use to see who really improved from the sophomore to junior year, James, especially in the college front, because we know with prep players, unless you're giving them $500,000 to buy out their college scholarship, you're not drafting them fifth to the 10th round. You'll just wait after the 10th round and then work out that bonus money later for the prep players. Uh, I, I really do think that cutting it down just 25 rounds will help the teams prepare Because after the fifth round, I just think teams are throwing darts at a dartboard at guys' names. Some will get lucky, some will not. And I won't fault any team that struggles after the fifth round in in four or five years when we look back at the 2020 Major League Baseball draft because of the unfortunate circumstances that all the time and effort that they put in, I think that they can only be confident in the first five rounds and the guys that they're picking.
2: Yeah, and so, I mean, while we both do follow the draft pretty closely, I would say you follow the sport of college baseball much, much closer than I do. So, you know, just as far as, like, some guys are going to be able to stay in school, how do you think it affects, though, you know, like, these high school kids that, like, really want to go pro and don't really want to be on campus? I mean, like, the Sox took DJ um, Gladney in round six, 16 last year. He, you know, like, they kind of knew that there was no way that kid was going to eastern Kentucky, right? But – right. If if what you're saying happens, where the teams kind of use the first ten rounds, um, and and pay like you know closer to a slot bonus, and they're not going to be able to like overslot in the later rounds, I wonder what that means for you know some of those high school guys that are willing to take like 300k, you know, instead of you know, and they and they massage the bonus pool number, you know, when 300k is really only like a you know like a hundred thousand for the club. Those are some of the interesting, I guess, things that I'm interested in seeing at this point I mean honestly I just like hope they have the draft I'm like scared to death but yeah um, but though I guess those are the things where you know like these juniors the big name juniors are going pro they're not going back to school like just because they can um but I, I just wonder how it affects certain high school seniors yeah I mean that's a great question like Ed Howard didn't get a chance to play this spring right
1: so right. you are relying on what Ed Howard did before the winter. Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable giving Ed Howard 4 million dollars from what you saw in late fall, which was the last time you saw him in action? And now it's June, right? It's 6-7 months later. Are you comfortable as a scouting director giving him 4 million dollars just to to take him in the top 10? I mean, that these are the questions that every team's going to have to ask themselves. Once Major League Baseball gets back to their daily routine and once they decide when they're going to have the 2020 Major League Baseball draft, I think it's a terrible idea if they cancel the Major League Baseball draft. That would just make the 2021 draft and beyond just absolutely crazy and, and too stacked. And it, it would really hurt as far as players earning potential, depending on whether they would be selected in, in the first round. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the... The question that every scouting director is going to have to ask about the high schooler guys, I do think it would benefit someone like Jared Kelly, which Jared Kelly was the best prospect that I saw at Wrigley Field during the Under Armour showcase last July. He was very good in his two innings, and he's been pitching, obviously, down in Texas starting the year. I have him as the highest rated prep arm and there's plenty of video and scouts have seen them. So I think teams would be more confident drafting and paying Jared Kelly $4 million, uh, James, then they would be giving Ed Howard, who's the top prep shortstop in this class, $4 million because they haven't seen him since what November, or maybe they saw him in December. If he played a, a showcase out West or down South, uh, that I don't know. So, uh, I could see, with the exception of Jared Kelly, the first twelve picks could be a lot of college players because scouts got to see him in February and March, and they feel a little bit more confident in what they can provide, and a little bit more confident that I can give this guy multi-million dollar signing bonus and they will pan out compared to the high schoolers.
0: Josh, really good stuff. I want to touch I want to go back to what you were talking about. Related to, I, I agree with your point. I want to mention that, too. I agree with, I like the idea of kind of taking the draft from 40 to 25. Uh, because it just makes so much sense. Now I'm thinking to myself, right, as you were talking, you have the information that you're, okay, confident in getting the guys in these frontmost rounds that's worth it. Because you have enough scouting uh, of these guys. But then I think, right, once it gets ladder a- into the draft, How much information do you have on these later-round picks that you're not willing to spend a lot of bonus pool money on? And then how does it affect the players in college moving forward themselves, like, individually? Do they go back to school? Now, I guess my question to you is, for the NCAA, do you think they'll do the right thing and allow some of these players because, what were they, a month, a month and a half into their seasons? Like, do you think that the NCAA will allow them to come back to school and play with another year of eligibility. As long as they don't hire
1: an agent. Yes. Now who's doing that negotiating for you. If you don't have an agent, mom and dad, right. Or yourself, you are doing that negotiating and (laughs) I'm sorry. Agents are around for a reason. They know when teams are trying to hoodwink them, right? Uh, try to pull a fast one and they do a great job representing their clients and make sure their clients get top dollar and the, the offer and deals and bonus money that they want, where it's really hard as an individual because, you know, Nick Costellor can give you a call on the phone. I mean, he's not in charge of scouting as far as a director, but he can still make that call and be like, Hey. Just letting you know, the White Sox really like you, and you know if you're willing to sign for twenty five thousand dollars, we'll draft you in the seventh round, and you can say that you are a seventh round pick, and you can start your you know, professional career, and then you're conflicting, you know, like you're conflicting, like oh man, I really want to start my major league career, but is twenty five thousand dollars enough? And then you you make, you might make those sacrifices where an agent would handle all that conversations for you. It gets you the dollar amount that you want. And you can just focus on baseball while somebody else is working on the finance part. Uh, So that's where I think things are going to get complicated for the college guys. And that's where it's just going to be fascinating after the fifth round on how everything unfolds because if they don't hire an agent, then they're good. If they don't get the dollar amount that they want, they can come back and, you know, especially college juniors, they can get an extra year of eligibility uh, even the draft eligible sophomores, I think one case in where this is beneficial is Mississippi state right-hander JT Ginn. I don't know about you, James, but Ginn was as high as number six on my draft board. I thought he was a definitely a top 10 arm, uh, college eligible sophomore to be drafted. Uh, but now he had the shoulder injury and Mississippi state shut him down so he could stay shut down. And he can decide he may get drafted again, but he may decline to sign and he could return back to school. And if he's healthy, he'll be a junior. And then he would still be eligible for the 2021 draft. And he could headline that class with uh, Kumar Rocker, the star right-handed pitcher out of Vanderbilt University, and, and still be considered a top five preseason pick in next year's draft. So a couple scenarios. I think for the college juniors that are going to be drafted the fifth round later, it's going to be tough and it's going to be fascinating to see who actually signs and who doesn't. But you do have some top college prospects. Uh, Garrett Crochet is another one from Tennessee uh, that was dealing with shoulder injuries that were considered first round talents but they may go back to school because of injury and may go back to school to prove themselves that they are healthy and that they are still talented and they are still effective to give themselves a better opportunity of being selected in the top 10 and make more money out of that signing pool.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, this process is going to be unlike anything we've seen that we're going to be covering it different than we have in the past. Obviously. Um, I don't know if you, you know, were around when Mike Shirley talked that. At Sox Fest, and you know, it, it sounds like you know pretty much like business as usual with him taking over. Other than, you know, he did say that they were you know expecting to be a little bit more prep focused going forward, which makes sense anyway. Just with, you know, the state of the organization, like it makes sense to add younger players, yeah, to the system in general. Now, you know, with the change in the scouting process right now. Okay. If they say, they like set a goal where they wanted to be more prep focused. I'm sure I've heard the same connection to Ed Howard as you have. Um, you know, I've heard that they like Jared Kelly too. I'm not sure he's going to be there, but does it make any sense in the first round to say like, you know, we, we'd like to be prep focused or are they probably, I mean, there might be a college starter there that they almost have to take. I think,
1: do you want to do a quick mock draft? While we're on here, James, do you feel prepared to do a quick mock draft <laughs> to see on who we think right now the White Sox would possibly take at eleven? Like Detroit, let's start with Detroit. I think it's Spencer Torkelson. I think there's just too much smoke around Spencer Torkelson, and too much, too many rumors that if the draft was tomorrow, the Tigers would take Spencer Torkelson.
2: Yeah, and Martin one. and Martin probably goes second. See, I and, don't think I don't think Baltimore takes
1: Martin. I think Baltimore takes Asa Lacy. Take left-handed picture. pitcher out of texas a and m uh they could go either way but okay so i agree with you martin austin martin the, sh- the third baseman shortstop out of vanderbilt goes second or third because miami is behind baltimore and they need pitching and i know they like asa lacy so they're going in that some type of order kansas city they could start thinking about the replacement of whit merrifield with nick gonzalez the second baseman from new mexico state who is putting up video game numbers toronto has made a known that they need starting pitching and they would be ecstatic to have Emerson Hancock, the right-hander from Georgia fall fifth overall to them. Then you get to Seattle who the heck knows
2: with Seattle. Uh, honestly. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think they, they could be a high school team, but like what you've, you know, what we've talked about is I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be college heavy more so than even, I mean, it always is, but even more so than usual, just because it's like much safer, right now, I think so. Yeah. I yeah think, like I a think lot of those, like Detmers could go higher than you and I, I think originally thought like, I think Detmers could be like, right. Five, six, seven, just because it's, it's pretty safe. Yeah. I, th- I could see Seattle taking Detmers. I could see Pittsburgh
1: taking Detmers, even though they did like Jared Kelly, uh, San Diego always goes prep. San Diego would be someone like Austin Hendrick, the outfielder from Pennsylvania. Uh, Colorado, who the heck knows man for, yeah, I think, I think,
2: I think Zach Veen is going to end up in the top 10. Um, see, we're, we're talking
1: about a lot of prep guys, like a lot of prep guys could still find themselves in the top 10, but then you get to Anaheim and Anaheim needs a college starter. And this is where I've always felt this. There's always been three players in my mind for the white Sox at pick 11. It's been Jared Kelly. It's been Ed Howard. And it's been Reed Detmers. And whomever was left over out of those three at pick 11, I think they would be good to go to take them 11th overall. And I think they would be in a good position because Reed Detmers, all right, the White Sox are contending. Detmers is someone that could quickly rise to the farm system. And if you need more starting pitching depth, he could be available he is, you don't have to worry about as far as his fastball, his fastball is not going to improve from the 92 93. He, he is the most major league ready starting pitcher out of college, in my opinion, uh, to be ready for the pros where Asa Lacey just needs to make some tweaks as far as to have better control and command, but Lacey's got overall better stuff, but then you could start planning for the future. I mean, you have Jared Kelly or if he falls to 11 and you take Jared Kelly or even Mick Abel, that's another top prep, arm uh, even also Nick Bitsko as well from Pennsylvania another top prep arm if you take another prep arm now you're kind of building this prep arm contingent right with Andrew Dahlquist and Matthew Thompson uh, and let's say it's Jared Kelly now Jared Kelly okay you could see where the White Sox are building some starting pitchers that they may need in four to five years or they take the local kid in Ed Howard and you can say he is the hair parent to shortstop when the White Sox are ready to move on from Tim Anderson I mean, there's a lot of angles that the White Sox could take. They were in good position to get an elite talent whenever they have this draft in 2020. I don't think it makes sense to be dedicated and say, yeah, we're going to be prep-focused at pick 11 because you don't know what type of prep player is going to be available. If Austin Hendrick is available at number 11, I don't even know if that's the direction the White Sox want to go. I mean, I guess he could be the best prep player available, but it's another another outfielder, and you got a ton of those guys already, and I know you're never supposed to drop by need, but if it's between Ed Howard and Austin Hendrick, I'm taking Ed Howard because the White Sox need more shortstops in their farm system. And you know that Ed Howard could stick defensively at shortstop. He just needs more time to develop offensively. Where Austin Hendrick is got a world of offensive potential, but the guy is a right fielder and he's always going to stick at right field. And he's never going to, you're never going to move him off of right field. He is a right fielder. He that's the way he is. And there's not much growth defensively for him. It's all bad. And I think, you know, for the white Sox for Mike Shirley, if you know, we do have the draft and he speaks again in a month, I think he just needs to be open to any possibility. But I do think it's focused on best available college starting pitcher or best pl- prep player available and let the debate begin there. I do not see a college position player, James, really being in the mix at pick 11.
2: No, I agree with you there, too. And if somebody made me like choose right now, like I would bet on it being Ed Howard simply because the other guys that you mentioned, I think they're more likely to go in the top 10. Now, I actually think while Ed Howard would be a really good pick and it makes sense. And he's an ACE program kid and he shares like an, you know, an advisor with Tim Anderson and they know him really well. The White Sox might be his ceiling at this point. I'd be kind of surprised if he went in the top 10, if he's not going to play any games. No, I, you are absolutely right. I think 11 would be as high as Ed Howard would go.
1: He could drop all the way down to pick 20, depending on how pitch starved all these teams are. Right. Because looking at the draft order after the White Sox, it's the Reds. The Giants need pitching. The Rangers always need pitching. The Philly, the Cubs, we know the Cubs need pitching. We talked about Chris Sale earlier. The Red Sox need pitching. Uh, The New York Mets, Noah Syndergaard being out. The Mets need pitching. The Milwaukee Brewers need pitching. I mean, so many teams in the first round are starved for pitching that pitching would have dominated the first round. And that's where Ed Howard would have slipped later in the first round of the draft because he's just getting overpassed because teams need pitchers in their farm system so badly right now. And there's a great deal of depth as far as this upcoming draft class when it comes to college and prep pitchers uh, that, yeah, I agree with you, James. I think you're 100% right. Ed Howard is the, is the ceiling for his draft stock right now? Pick 11, I think is as high as he goes.
0: Listeners, if you were unfamiliar with the mind and knowledge of Josh Nelson, I hope that you are now familiar and informed Josh, (laughs) really, really good stuff. I mean, this was such a great conversation. I mean, we're about an hour into this recording and it's so nice to just lock in zone in and forget everything else and just dive into this sort of conversation. That's what we want to do here. You, you, You did outstanding stuff for us. We really appreciate your time before we let you go. I want to. I want to ask you how you're filling your time throughout this quarantine. I see you're posting quite a bit of MLB The Show stuff. Now, if you ever want to go one on one, you know, you
1: just let me know. Yeah, so you could whoop me. Um, uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, MLB The Show has been consuming a lot of my time, and it's been a. It's been a great baseball. It's filling my baseball fix. And it is fun and sure I'll play anyone you'll you'll kick my butt. This is the first time I've ever played MLB the show. And I know the game's been around for like 15 years. So I am a noob uh, through (laughs) and through um, playing this game. I'm so happy. I finally got to hit a home run with Luis Robert 27 games into the season. He's already worth negative one war. I'm doing so poorly with Luis Robert. Yes, Grundel, though is awesome. in MLB the show. I really enjoy playing with him. But, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I've been focusing on most of my time is playing video games and getting that baseball fix and, of course, doing the game show. But I am I'm talking to people still, and I'm just trying to get a good understanding, a good feel of when baseball is going to come back. And I'm sorry, folks, but everyone that I've been talking to is kind of in the same boat. We don't know. And hopefully things change in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully things calm down and, you know, people, you know, respecting the CDC and medical professionals advice of staying home, you know, staying six feet apart if you can, especially if you have to work and, and, you know, you go get your groceries and and you come back home that hopefully things calm down and we're able to flatten the curve and we can get back to normal life as soon as possible. And then, you know, in June, James, Mike, we're talking about the Major League Baseball draft and we're hosting a live stream covering the Major League Baseball draft. That, that's, that's my hope right now is that we do return back to normal and there will be baseball in May.
0: Very well said, Josh. Thanks so much for your time. You can follow him on Twitter at SoxMachine underscore Josh. He is the host of the Sox Machine podcast. Also, give his new podcast some love. It nine innings a part of the Sox Machine network. Josh, one more time. Thanks again, man. Great stuff.
1: Absolutely. Mike, James, it's a blast. Great job with the Future Sox podcast and hope to talk to you guys soon.
0: For James Fox and Josh Nelson, my name is Mike Rankin. Thank you all for clicking on this link and tuning in to this edition of the Future Sox podcast. You, of course, can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. We are on multiple podcasting platforms. Go to anchor.fm slash futuresox to check us out and explore our full library. That was the conversation that I'm going to be listening to back because it'll take up my time and I can zone in again. Hopefully everybody else can stay healthy. I hope you were entertained. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk to you all next time.